Hebrews chapter 1 verses 5 to chapter 2 verses 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How do you picture Jesus? If I ask you to close your eyes now and picture Jesus, how do you picture him? Is he, um, I don't know, Middle Eastern Jesus? Or perhaps he's um, wimpy, Swedish looking Jesus you might have seen in Sunday school? Or how about hipster Jesus? Or maybe you like um, apocalyptic Jesus, you know, um, face like the sun, eyes of fire, a sword coming out of his mouth. Which Jesus? Well, last week we began this series in Hebrews, which is all about giving us a bigger, clearer picture of Jesus so we can know how much better he is than anyone or anything else. And we aren't told much about who Hebrews is written to, but from the rest of the letter we can work out that they were believers who had been Christians for some time and had suffered for their faith, that at least some of them were in danger of drifting away from the gospel and missing out on heaven, and that some had withdrawn from regular gatherings with the Christians, and that some were weary and needed encouragement to keep going as Christians. Which, when you think about it, could easily describe our church, couldn't it? So we'd better sit up and take notice of the key verse, the warning in today's passage. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay most, the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Pay the most careful attention so that we don't drift. See, the question is, who will we listen to? Who will we pay the most careful attention to? So Hebrews has got lots of these moments of exhortation like we see in chapter 2 there. Strongly stated pleading with the hearers. And this is the first one in this book. Well, I say book, Hebrews is actually a talk, a sermon. It's a pretty long one, but it's a great example of how to preach well. You see, I, could rec I reckon I could, if I practised enough, give you a really emotional, hyped up talk every week so that you go away feeling like you've had a really special experience. I could create a narrative for you to feel caught up in. But the trouble is, feelings fade, don't they? Emotions evaporate. In Hebrews, these exhortations never stand on their own. They're always backed up with careful reasoning from Scripture, from the Old Testament. The author makes a case and then he tells the listener what to do. He presents us evidence from the Old Testament about Jesus so that you can be convinced for yourself and feel for yourself that Jesus is better rather than me or anyone else giving you like a temporary jolt, an emotional high. So as you listen to other people's talks, as you read the Bible, don't be too quick to take shortcuts to the, come on, just tell me what to do or think or feel part. Now, God's had the Bible written in the way it is written on purpose to engage your brain in order to speak to your heart. Pay the most careful attention so that we don't drift. So last week in verse 1 to 4, we got the headlines, the, the themes of what, what is better about Jesus. Finishing up with, in verse 4 with the claim that Jesus is superior to angels. So the careful attention we are to give in the rest of the chapter, um, in the rest of chapter one, like a chain of proof texts from the Old Testament that prove this point that Jesus is greater than angels, followed by that exhortation, followed by that what to do with the information in chapter two, which we'll get to nearer the end. So here's an outline of um, where we're headed. Pay careful attention because Jesus is better than angels. We're going to see how angels are like Aussie mine workers, honestly. Danger of drifting and the antidote's drifting. So that's where we're heading. So first then, Jesus is better than angels. See, verse 5 to 14 is this, is this chain of carefully curated Old Testament quotes which prove, verse 4, that Jesus is superior to angels. Now, I dare say that you're probably not all that fussed about angels. But in chapter 2, verse 2, the message spoken through the angels is the law given to Moses. Uh, and that idea that it was angels who delivered the message of the law to Moses is found in several places in the New Testament. So perhaps the hearers of this message were being shamed for accepting the gospel because it was not part of the law. Now, we don't worry about paying careful attention to the message of angels, 
but there are always lots of messages and lots of messengers competing with the gospel for our most careful attention. Our friends, our family, subtly hinting you know, that you've taken this Christianity stuff too seriously. The prevailing cultural narrative that keeps telling you you are intolerant and full of hate and ignorance, whilst at the same time shaming and condemning any alternative point of view. I mean, Twitter claims to empower us all with a voice, doesn't it? But if you say the wrong thing, you're condemned and shamed more than a religious extremist would. Jesus is better than angels, and Jesus is better than any other messenger or message that demands your ear. So let's have a look now, uh, we'll whiz through these verses, so that it's, it's handy if you've got them in front of you, uh, I'll show them on the screen. And each passage looks, looks forward to a future figure, and the author of Hebrews is making it clear that this future figure is Jesus. So first of all, exhibit A, Jesus is God's son, looking at verses five and six. This first quote is from Psalm two, about the establishing of God's son as the universal king. The second is from Psalm seven, sorry, two Samuel, verse seven, chapter seven. Uh, God promised to establish a king from David's line as the eternal ruler of his kingdom. So Jesus is God's son, He's royalty, and he is God's king, who everyone, including angels, verse 6, will bow down to. Okay, exhibit B. Jesus is God. You know, angels uh, have a job to do for God, verse 7, but Jesus is God. Verses 8 and 9, Chrome quote Psalm 45 where God is talking to the son Jesus and and calls him God you see God hasn't just sent us a text message he hasn't just sent messages with angels Jesus is God turning up in person everything else competing for attention is temporary but Jesus rule verse 8 will last forever Everyone else competing for our, atten- for our attention has got their own agenda and muddied motives. Jesus' rule is all about justice, total fairness, and verse 9, righteousness, pure goodness, and doing away with wickedness. So we've had exhibit A, exhibit B. Now exhibit C, Jesus is creator, looking at verses 10 and 12. Jesus is creator. So quoting from Psalm 102, the author is pointing out that angels are, like us, part of the created world. But Jesus is the creator through whom they were made. So everything else we might pay the most careful attention to is temporary. It'll be rolled up like a picnic blanket with the rest of creation. But Jesus is the eternal creator. And the mind-blowing fact that he stepped into his creation as a real human and still rules as a human now doesn't change the fact that he is eternal, above creation, 
uh, as it said in verse 3, sustaining all things by his word. So, final one, exhibit D, looking at verse 13. Jesus has won. Uh, Jesus sitting down in these verses, this verse, uh, is significant in two ways. He isn't, it means he's not bowing down like the angels do. He isn't kneeling down. No, he is God the Son, and so he sits alongside the Father. So him sitting means he's equal with the Father, but him sitting also means that the job is done. It's time to sit down, put his feet up and have a cup of tea. Put his feet up on his enemies. You know, there's not going to be uh, an end of credit sequence where the enemy just about survives to come back for a sequel. No, Jesus' enemies are thoroughly defeated. Justice completely done once and for all. So you see with all these exhibits that the author piles up the evidence about how Jesus, how much better Jesus is than angels or anything else, any other messenger, to put us in awe of him, to capture our hearts in wonder at how Jesus is number one in all time, in all the universe. He helps us to see what to give the most careful attention to so that we do not drift. But what about angels, hey? Well, angels are like Aussie mine workers. Honestly, I'll show you how. So verse 14, we are not all, we are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. It's not such a big thing now, but I remember in the 80s and 90s, there was lots of interest in angels in Christian circles, lots of books. And two especially dodgy ideas emerged. Uh, one was the idea that you need to get to know and be guarded by your guardian angel. And the other idea was that angels are sitting around wanting to fight battles for us, but can only do so if we pray the right prayer at the right time to release them. And both those ideas, well, they're closer to paganism than they are to Christianity. No, angels are like Aussie mine workers. They fly in, they get the job done, and they fly out. Angels are not about getting any attention on themselves, but about delivering God's messages and verse 14 about serving Christians serving you and me. We don't know what they look like, except they're nearly always open with, do not be afraid. Now, lots of us, me included, have got mysterious stories that we think possibly could be the work of angels. And I suppose if they are our servants, that's to be expected. But let's not miss the point that the author is making here. Our closest attention is to be on the one who is greater than angels. I mean, even if we do have encounters with angels, so what? Jesus is better. And like the Holy Spirit, the last things angels would want as they serve us is for themselves to divert our attention away from Jesus. 
So what do we do with this information about Jesus being better? Well, in chapter two, uh, the author um, comes to his application, his exhortation, sort of the direct heartfelt appeal. So first, the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting. Drifting doesn't sound all that dramatic, does it? You know, it's not a sudden turning away from Jesus, an abandoning of faith. It doesn't sound like a dramatic deconversion story. But drifting is how most of those dramatic deconversion stories start. But we wouldn't dream of turning away from Jesus, would we? And yet this warning is written for Christians just like you, just like me. Look, nobody decides one day, I don't think I'll bother with Jesus anymore. Because right now, you still know and feel how good he is. How good it is to know salvation. You can still see how lost and condemned you are without him. But drift. Drift is subtle, gradual, almost imperceptible. It starts with giving yourself little permissions. Oh, God understands that sin. He doesn't really mind. He knows what I'm like. After all, he made me this way. You cut yourself some slack. Look, God knows the pressure I'm under at work. He knows the, how hard this season of, of life at home is. He doesn't expect me to be on full throttle burners as a Christian at the moment. When things calm down, when that next deadline is gone, when I'm just over the horizon, then I'll take Jesus more seriously. And slowly but surely, bit by bit, your attention on Jesus drifts. The world and the message it, messages it gives you have your attention more. And soon they seem to make so much more sense, seem so much easier in the here and now. There's a lot less awkward conversations there's a lot more free time. And before you know it, you've forgotten how Jesus is better. And to look at your life, no one would ever know that you loved him. He becomes, like in the words of the song, just somebody that I used to know. But here's the warning. Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how will we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The message spoken through the angels, God's law, there were consequences for breaking it. Punishment that we all face for going our own way and ignoring God. Jesus is all about righteousness, fairness, justice. And when Jesus returns, each of us will have to give an account and face judgment. But the good news is Jesus, God the Son, the eternal King, the Creator, he stepped in to take our place, to bear the judgment we deserve and pay the price completely for anyone who will trust in him. The judge, has taken the punishment on himself. So the warning goes, 
if, any, if going against God's law demands justice, how much more punishment do we deserve if we know not only the consequences of sin, but then also know how to be rescued and saved from those consequences and still reject Jesus by our neglect? How much worse to, by our neglect and just mundane distraction, abandon our rescuer Jesus? Not even having the guts to rebel against him directly, but treating him in all his majesty and his humility on the cross as if he's just another thing competing for our hard-won attention. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? How are you going to face your judgment if you've abandoned Jesus? What's your escape plan? Are all the things, all the other things that have crowded Jesus out, are they going to save you? How are you going to feel when all those safe in Jesus go off to a new perfect creation with him and you're left to face the consequences of drifting away from Jesus? Please don't drift. Dabbling in sin is not harmless. Getting distracted from Jesus is not harmless. You can't live the Christian life without paying close attention to God's word in the Bible. Look, this isn't being legalistic. It's warning you about how life actually works. And if our neglect leads us away from Jesus, well, we'll get what we deserve for that. Please do not drift away. So what's the antidote to drifting? Well, it's to stay anchored in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. That verse again. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. We need to give our best attention to knowing Jesus through God's word. Now we can, <clears throat> excuse me, we can do that through the Old Testament. Pretty much all of Hebrews is going to show us how to do that, how to see how Jesus completes or is the better example of the, or the one who is proven to be the one talked about in any Old Testament passage that we read. Yet God still speaks to us through the messages given to the prophets by the angels that we find in the Old Testament. And we can give our close attention to the New Testament, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus and the inspired word of God to understand who he is, what he's done and how to live in response. And just imagine when you get to heaven, bumping into great King David. You know, you have a chat about his life, asking about Goliath, don't mention Bathsheba, all about his encounters with God. But he's like to you, he's like, I, I loved it. David says, I loved it when God spoke to us through the prophets. The words he gave me for those Psalms were just amazing. But you guys, 
<laughs> you've got, you've had the word himself. You've got to know who the promised king is. He came to you in person and he had it all written down for you in your own language. You could even listen to it or read it on those funny devices you keep in your pocket. How did you ever find the time for anything else? Look, it seems to be a tradition now amongst preachers, along with the obligatory C.S. Lewis quote, it seems to be a tradition to have a go at people for watching Netflix. Now, I watch Netflix, sometimes too much. I mean, how often do we say, oh, go on, just one more episode? Well, I bet it's more often than we say, oh, go on, just one more chapter of the Bible. Ten more minutes thinking about these verses. It struck me the other day that I knew what all the latest scores in the Premier League and the Champions League soccer matches were. While Sharon was re-familiarising, my wife, was, she was re-familiarising herself with the book of Zechariah, just for her interest, and really enjoying it. Look, we're free as Christians from the law. It's not wrong to enjoy relaxing in front of the telly. It can even be really helpful, some good stuff on there. But hear this, it's downright, downright dangerous to be distracted from giving Jesus your closest, your premium, your best attention. So what's stopping you? Well, here's an idea for this week. Look, we've been through chapter one and there was a lot in there, wasn't there? Lots of um, other passages being quoted. So how about this week, have a look at one of those quoted passages each day with the express purpose of using it to get a clearer, bigger picture of Jesus. Because if we've got a small, lightweight picture of Jesus, we'll only have a small, lightweight anchor to stop us from drifting. All those other messages will win our attention because we can't see how attention-worthy Jesus is. And a small view of Jesus will give us a small view of the danger we face without him. So what's stopping you paying attention? Maybe you struggle to read. Maybe you're not a great reader. Well, that's okay. Neither could most of the Bible's original audience. The Bible's written, actually, to be read aloud. So go on Bible Gateway, or you can get the NIV audio app, and you can listen to it instead. Pay the most atten careful attention to what we have heard. Now, often we need help with that, don't we? You know, if you've got serious doubts, for instance, if there are issues about following Jesus and things that we believe, um, objections to Christianity, if you're struggling with any of that, don't let it fester. Front up to those doubts, those questions. Ask me or any mature Christian you trust to talk them through with you. Otherwise, if you do drift, those doubts can become defeater beliefs, even though they've been thought about for centuries and there are good biblical answers to them. If you aren't in a growth group where you can wrestle with the Bible, where you can help each other give it your closest attention together, then now's the time to join one. 
Let's take the opportunity right now to look back to shore, to see how far we've drifted away from our Jesus beach towel, if you like. Maybe lockdown and us not gathering physically has made you realise that actually I have been drifting. Maybe you're realising that some other things, maybe good things like family or work, maybe some bad things that you know are wrong, but you've given yourself permission to do, maybe they've got your closest attention at the moment and have caused you to drift. If that's you, I'm going to pray at the end and you can make that your prayer with an Amen. But it's not too late. Turn back against the tide, back to Jesus, and know that in his grace, he draws you right back to him. Remember, chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus has the power and authority to overcome any distraction. He has paid the price for our lack of attention and he promises to keep us as his own until the very end. Not least through the warnings that we need to hear like we have done today. So let's pray. Lord God, you've spoken to us through your Son. We confess we have failed to give Jesus our closest attention. We're sorry. Please forgive us. Thank you for waking us up to drifting away from him. Please help us to see the dangers of the tides pushing against us and see them for what they are. We turn back to Jesus now, trusting in him alone to save us. We resolve to give him the closest attention that he is due as our Lord and Saviour. Please defend us from drifting. Please help us in our reading and hearing and understanding your word and putting it into practice. In Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.